Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. I just want to share something with you. Toward the end of July, I received a Facebook Messenger message from somebody I was not a friend with, didn't know, so on and so forth from Ohio. The reason why I want to share this story is I want to share with you, number one, why although we have a live stream that goes on Facebook every service, why we still have a podcast and why Wednesday Night Bible Study is important. I received this message from this man at the the end of July and this is what he wrote he said I'm a 34 year old I was born and raised apostolic I haven't went to church for almost two years prior to this he had just sent me a little message that said hey brother do you put your church service on podcast to give you a little background there he said I haven't went to church for almost two years he said I was feeling an emptiness and I knew the only thing I was missing was church so last Sunday I took my family to church and it was what I needed One of the things my pastor always says is be careful what you listen to and watch on TV. Always let that go in one ear and out the other. Always listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. I was at work yesterday and had my headphones in listening to Joe Rogan and I felt convicted. So I searched the word apostolic and I listened to a few sermons and a few discussions and finally I got to your podcast. And brother, I tell you that when you preached about Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead, this is a Wednesday night Bible study. I felt the Lord present. I'm surrounded by construction workers, and we are building a bridge. On top of this bridge, I felt the Holy Ghost. I thought for a second my first time speaking in tongues is going to be around all these men that have no clue. I had tears in my eyes running down my face. Luckily, it was 90 degrees, and I was sweating. When you yelled, Lazarus, come forth, I felt the power of God right there. The way you described that Jesus waited for the fourth day after he died to resurrect him, it just hit me how amazing the mighty and mighty he truly is. I just wanted to say all that to tell you, if you think you didn't get through to anyone with that message, well, two months after you preached it, you really lit a fire in my soul. I thank you. That's the reason why we still have a podcast, though we have a live stream. And that's the reason why we do Wednesday night Bible study. One of the reasons, in addition to you who show up faithfully on Wednesdays. Because listen, the arm of the church is not regulated to this building or this community or this state. The arm of the Lord is far reaching. And we can be a part of that right here from what we would say, little old Mount Carmel. Amen. If you'll stand with me tonight, we want to go to the word of the Lord. First, I'm going to read John 20 and verse 31, because since it's been a while to remind you of what we deem as the key verse for this whole book of John, the Bible says, but these and the these it's referring to as signs. These signs are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. You could take the gospel of John and pour it through that verse and see glimpses of that. In every chapter and verse. Now, John chapter number 12. If you forgot where we were, this is where we're at. John chapter number 12. Allow me to read the first few verses here. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. 
There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my bearing hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people, the Jews therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. For a little while tonight, I want to teach this subject at the feet of the resurrection. At the feet of the resurrection. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I come to you tonight. I pray, O oh Lord, you would help our hearts and our minds. Help us, O oh God, tonight to see the word of the Lord. God, let it find a place, Lord Jesus, of Lord comfort and security, Lord Jesus, in our life. These are the words that we live by, God, and these will be the words that we die by. God, help us, Lord, to pull them in close into our own bosom. God, it will not fail to thank you and praise you, Lord, for what you accomplished, Lord, through the teaching of your word. In the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Sister Brenda, it is good to see you tonight. Amen. In the house of the Lord, we've been praying for you and the loss that you have had in your family. Amen. And so it's good to see you. So since it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John, let me remind you of some of the last things that we studied. If you go back one chapter to John chapter number 11, you will remember that we saw both the death and the resurrection of Lazarus take place in that chapter. This is, Lazarus is, the brother of Martha and Mary. We also saw how this great miracle that was done in Lazarus' life seemed to do nothing more but fuel the desire of those who were already wanting to kill Jesus. It just fueled it that much more. They they are now more determined than ever, leaving uh, or having heard of that scenario very much so bent on killing the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us in the last chapter that Jesus is a little bit more uh, careful, uh, more guarded about walking freely and openly among the Jews, knowing their intent and knowing their purpose. And we understand in the last chapter that uh, it, it kind of predicts for us or forecasts for us that the Passover feast was coming. And there were many already wondering whether or not Jesus would show up to the Passover feast, being that the whole environment, and the whole tenor of, of the environment was as it was at that time. Nonetheless, they knew this was true, that if any man knew, this is the word that was rumbling through the grapevine, so to speak, that if any man knew uh, the whereabouts of the Lord Jesus, they were to share it with the authorities so that Jesus could be apprehended and Jesus could be taken. And so with that as a background, we come to chapter number 12, and the Bible says that Jesus shows up at Bethany. 
Now, Bethany is not all that far from Jerusalem. It's just a couple of miles from Jerusalem, a couple of miles from the epicenter of doom and despair and the possibility of murder. And it's six days before the Passover feast, and here's Jesus situated two miles just from Jerusalem where a grand group of people would like to take him and apprehend him and take him into custody. And so the Jews are looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus. And so John in his writing here, chapter 12, wisely includes in my estimation that Lazarus who, notice how he says it, Lazarus who had been dead, whom he, and he's referring to Jesus, whom Jesus raised from the dead was at Bethany too. The reason why I say John does this so wisely is that In essence, I see nothing but a very, very uh, good, magnificent literary piece here because it don't get too much better than this. I believe John's being very purposeful because people's been planning on killing the Lord. They've been strategizing to kill the Lord and they want to make him dead as a doornail, if we can use that phrase. And John says, well, here's someone also at Bethany who was raised from the dead by Jesus. Uh, The one that you want to kill Here's somebody that he raised. And so I think that's a very good literary device even within itself. And so in the chapter before, the people were grieving. Uh, We read in John 11, the people were grieving because Lazarus died. Yet toward the end of chapter number 11, amen, people were excited about the fact or the idea of being able to cause the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So on one hand, they're grieving because a man Lazarus died. On the other hand, they're just wringing their hands, foaming at the mouth, if you will, and wanting to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And now it's as though that John is paralleling the fact that they want to take life from someone who has the power to give life. Amen. They want to eliminate, if I could go a step further, they want to eliminate life from the life giver. Or more particularly, they want to take life from life. Because the Bible says in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they're wanting to take life from life. Amen. But little did they understand, little did they understand that what they planned to take, God had already planned to give from the very foundation of the world. Jesus, according to the book of Revelation, was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Bible says in Matthew 20 and verse number 28, Jesus is speaking. This verse can also be found in the other harmony of the Gospels. But Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He says, and to give his life a ransom for many. So yes... This man who's going to give his life a ransom for many who was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world it's already set in the scheme of eternity. Yes, this Jesus is just two miles from Jerusalem and he has no qualms about it. Yes, he's there just six days prior to the Passover and yes, he happens to be there with a man called Lazarus which he had brought back to life. Amen. So what you want to take, go on. He's going to give it because Jesus understands there's a whole lot more Lazaruses out there in the world that don't just need a literal resurrection, but they need a spiritual resurrection. 
When we look at the characters of the story here, once again, Martha, once again, is found doing her gifting, as we could call it. I, I would say that Martha had a gifting to serve, and she is found once again in that row of serving. I've said it before, it bears repeating the word serve, particularly here in this verse, means that she ministered. And so I've said it once, I'll say it again, everybody in the church is a minister. I'm not calling you to preach, I'm not calling you to teach, but in essence, ministry at its base is this, it is to serve. And so everybody in the church is a minister. Ministry encompasses more than the platform, more than singing, more than preaching, more than teaching. Ministry is what we do, particularly whenever we do it unto the Lord. It's what we do whenever we are serving the Lord. Mowing the lawn, keeping the sanctuary in a pleasant appearance. Yes, cooking food, distributing food. Sister Adams, creating graphics, painting a wall, fixing a fixture, whatever it is. All of these are ministry opportunities. Whenever they are done unto the Lord, we are doing unto him. We are serving him. We are involving ourselves in ministry. Amen. And the thing is this, we may gravitate toward a certain responsibility uh, you know, because it fits your life. Martha, again, gravitates toward that aspect of serving. But here's the fact of the matter. If you keep whatever it is that's been given to you, you might feel like it's a duty or responsibility, but you'll move to the realm looking at, looking at it as a ministry if you keep God at the center of it. Right? As a focus of it. Because whenever we do that, when we keep him as the focus of it and the center of it, it will elevate what we see as a mere task to ministry. Amen. Also, it's comforting to know that in a setting where many wanted to do the Lord a disservice, that there was still someone such as Martha that wanted to do the Lord a service. Well, people, well, while serving the Lord, sometimes we find ourselves in the minority. All right, we find ourselves in the minority, our service to the Lord, being patient with the Lord, waiting on the Lord. But here's what I want you to realize in John 12, that it was a minority that witnessed dead things brought back to life. From John 11 and 12, when we see Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus was the one that brought back, she was in the minority, yes, of being a servant to the Lord, but she was also one that could say, I witnessed the resurrection of the dead. I don't have no problems being a part of that type of minority. Amen. No problems at all. So Mary also in the scripture, she stayed true to her ministry as well. The ministry of being at the feet of Jesus. She anointed, as the story tells us, she anointed Jesus' feet with a pound of ointment, which equates to about half a liter, or if you will, somewhere around a pint. She anointed his feet with this ointment, and the Bible plainly tells us that this ointment was very costly. Mary sacrificed something valuable, which is in reality not much different than what many before her had done quite the same thing. When we read of Abraham in the Old Testament log of Scripture, of how he attempted to offer sacrifice of his son Isaac on the altar, he was offering something very 
valuable. That was very costly to him. David even said in the Old Testament that he would not give something to the Lord that did not cost him something or did not cost him nothing. The Bible says it like this. This is the recording of the scripture in 2 Samuel 24, 24. And the king said in Arnon, Arnon, nay, but I will surely buy it. This is David saying, I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So it was very costly for David to build an altar. It was very costly for David to have a sacrifice to offer upon the altar. But it was all unto the Lord. It was very costly for Abraham to attempt to sacrifice Isaac. Amen. When that was his only begotten son and he had a promise looming over his head that he would be the father of many to sacrifice the very venue through which that many would probably come. That was a very costly sacrifice amen verse 5 tells us in John 12 it tells us what the ointment could have been sowed for it could have been sowed for 300 pence in other places it calls it 300 denarii amen the denarius or the pence was a silver coin worth a standard day's wage so if you took a person's uh, year of working, you subtracted all the Sabbaths they couldn't work on and all the new moons and different feasts that they couldn't work on, it meant that what was here before us, 300 of these, it was equivalent to a year's wages of the ordinary man because he doesn't work the 365 days of the year, which would have even been less for them because they went by a lunar calendar. But nonetheless, amen. So this is about a year's worth of wages for the ordinary man, what this ointment is valued at. Now, folks, that's costly. Take what you make in a year, distill it into some ointment, and then break that out and pour it on somebody's feet. Some of y'all... It would be tears because I'm crying over I was just dumped on his feet. Yeah, I'm washing his feet with my tears. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. But she poured it out upon someone's feet because this is something that was very costly. This is something we see throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, Sister Sheila, we read of the whole burnt offerings in the book of Leviticus. It's very detailed and gives us description concerning them. The, the whole burnt offerings are described that they should be from the herd or they should be from the flock. What that meant was this. Those whole burnt offerings, whose purpose was that you're going to separate its parts, you're going to wash some of the parts and other parts you don't have to, but nonetheless, they're all going to be laid on the altar that's with fire, and that fire is going to consume that sacrifice, and it's lifted up into the Lord. Nobody ever got a piece of the meat of the whole burnt offering. It was totally given to God on the fire, consumed by the fire. Well, it was to be of the herd or the flock, which meant it had to be a domesticated animal. In other words, you didn't go get an animal from the wild and put it on the whole burnt on the altar for a whole burnt offering. No, you got a domesticated animal. What does that mean? It means it was an animal that you cared for. It was an animal that you fed. It's an animal that you invested time in, an animal that you protected, an animal that belonged to you, right? Because what's the sacrifice if you go get a wild animal and put it on there? And be domesticated, all right? I'm not trying to get gross here, but just bring it home to you. It'd be like taking your dog that's at your home. 
and putting it on a fire just to be consumed by fire. There you go, Jesus. Amen. There was a sacrifice. Someone's going to say, well, that's costly. Right? I bought that thing. I fed that thing. I housed that thing. I was close to that thing. It's very costly, but that's what was expected. And yet the scripture says in Leviticus, after many of those offerings that were offered unto the Lord as worship unto the Lord, you know what it says? That was a sweet savor. All times. It would state that that was a sweet savor unto the Lord. Amen. But the Bible says that whenever Mary offered what was very costly to her, it also had a fragrance that went with it. Amen. In the Old Testament, yes, we have the, uh, the, the whole burnt offerings. But in the New Testament, we have the costly gift of Mary's ointment, which fragrance filled, the Bible says, all of the house. And that resulted from Mary's actions. That resulted from Mary's actions. It benefited Jesus, yes. But it also benefited her. For that matter, it benefited everybody that was in the house. Amen. And we might even say that her whole offering of that, that ointment at Jesus' feet was a prelude to the whole burnt offering of what Jesus was going to become and be on the cross at Calvary. Amen. Hallelujah. So that offering did more than just appease the judgment of God, speaking of Jesus' offering, but it even enabled salvation for the whole world. And the aroma of that sacrifice is sweet as well. It fills the whole earth. Now, Mr. Carson asked a very thought-provoking question, and it made a question pop in my mind as a result of his question. You ever had that happen? He said, why would anyone wipe off perfume that had just been applied? She anoints his feet with the ointment and she wipes it with her hair. Why would you wipe off the perfume that has just been applied? And I add to that, why would they wipe it with their hair? Now, the fragrance filled the house. Here, just follow with me here a little bit. The fragrance filled the house. But to depart from the house would to, be, to leave the aroma behind. Mary wanted to be associated as much as possible with the Lord. She was always found sitting at his feet. When Jesus left the house, the sin of the ointment would not stay in the house alone, but follow wherever he went. It was placed on his feet. But because of Mary's actions of not just anointing his feet with the ointment, but also drying it with her hair, when she left the house, the same scent that was on Jesus woo, was on her. The costly thing that she had placed on his feet and that she had sacrificed unto him, she likewise wanted on her life. It was a valuable ointment, yes, but much more valuable now because it was linked to him. Amen. And so by wiping his feet with her hair, the perfume was an association that wasn't just now confined to the house, but it went home with her. Let me say it like this. There are some things I wish, I wish tonight, and sometimes it happens and sometimes we miss the mark, but I wish the things that we honored him with in the church setting, we would also get on us so that whenever we left the house, 
The fragrance didn't just stay in the house and it didn't just stay with him. But when we left, it would be more than just a memory of what filled the house. It would be a reminder of my personal touch from God on God, my interaction and connection to God that I could be guilty by association. Hallelujah. When I get home, it's still... The Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm just speaking imaginatively. I don't know how long it was before Mary washed her hair. Woo! Because when she laid her head down at night, she smelled what was on the master's feet. When she waked up in the morning, she would still smell. That's reminding her of him and that association that she had. Oh, glory! Hallelujah! That costly thing she placed on his feet. Amen. And there is a moment in this, and then we say, well, man, why, you know, the hair of all things. Well, you know, no doubt this illustrates a certain level of devotion and humility that Mary had. Again, she's always been at his feet, and it seems like, you know, she raised the ante. Now she's wiping off his feet with her hair. And being at the feet of someone uh, seemed to be the place of a disciple. The Apostle Paul, I believe it is, that speaks about sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Amen. And so being at the feet of one is almost as being the disciple of one. It was a servant's place. But she takes it a step further, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, here's just, this is just, this is Paul McGee 3.2, okay? We know. From 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 15, that a woman's long, which interpreted in the Greek is uncut, that a woman's uncut hair is a what? Glory to her. Woman's long hair is a glory to her. As a side note, as a side note, just a little deduction here. If Mary could wipe his feet with her hair, it probably wasn't a bob cut. Just consider. But nonetheless, a glory to her. And yet Mary, just thinking, and just thinking here, Mary then laid her glory at the master's. She understands even as the Apostle Paul and several others because no flesh is going to glory in his presence. So I'm going to take what is a glory to me and I'm going to put it on your, at your feet. Soon, folks, soon from John 12 forward because we're, we're in that time now that the, the direct focus it would seem of John is the passion, is the coming crucifix and everything leading up to it. That is where the mind of the Lord and the mind of the writer is taking us. So very soon, Roman soldiers are going to nail the feet of Jesus to the cross. They'll humiliate him with one of the most gruesome deaths of his time or ways or practices of deaths at, at this at their his time but before what's interesting to me is before they put a nail through Jesus's feet before his feet was pierced with a nail they had already been touched by Mary's hair and by the oil that she supplied those soldiers whether they knew it or not when they were handling the feet of Jesus to get the nail in they were handling anointed feet they were trying to usurp the authority of the Lord. 
They had been trying to do that. They're desiring to do it. They found a path. They finally done it. But not Mary. She was the one that laid her glory at his feet. And she humbled herself before the king of the Jews as it was written above the cross. For that matter, at the king of the king of glory's feet. Now, look at this now. When we consider the character of Judas in the story, Judas... Judas is here sitting by and he's taken in and observing everything that's going on. And he basically said this. He said, what, what happened right here with the anointing of the feet with the ointment, what this is is a misappropriation of something very valuable. A better use could have been supplied for this oil than this. This has been a misappropriation of something very valuable. And so John rightly includes in verse 4 that this is Judas, the one which should betray him. Listen to me very carefully because I think this is an important point for us tonight from chapter 12. So this is the one, the one that said that, you know, this is a misappropriation, if you will, of something that's valuable. We could have used this for something more. He says the poor, although the Bible says he didn't care for the poor in reality. So this, this is a misuse of something valuable. And John says this is the one that should betray him. Here's the principle I want to give to you tonight. If you underestimate the value of worship, you may be prone to betray the object of that worship. The whole golden, and I've talked about a lot of this lately on Sunday mornings, but the whole golden calf episode of Exodus 32 was simply this. People that underestimated the value of their worship. Mm Mm-hmm. And therefore, as a result, they betrayed the object of their worship by giving their diligence and their allegiance to the golden calf instead of God. It happens over and over in Scripture. When we see that Jeroboam is speaking in 1 Kings 12, whenever there were two golden calves made, look what the Bible says. 1 Kings 12, verse 27. He says, Jeroboam speaking, he says, If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Verse 28, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, note now, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. What are you saying? Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, uh, gesturing, if you will, to the golden calves. Jeroboam understood it. He got it. He knew if God's people would go to Jerusalem and sacrifice, to worship, then they would be faithful to their God. That's what he knew. If they'll go there and they'll do that, if they'll go there and worship, if they'll make the trip, they will be faithful to their God. So what does he do? He downplays the importance of their worship, telling them, in essence, that worshiping in Jerusalem is too much. You're putting more into it than what you really should be. You're investing too much making the trip. And so when they decided to stop doing that, since since he said you're investing more than it's worth, and they decided to stop doing that, Israel then, when they underestimated the value of their own worship, amen, because of his voice, what do they do? They betray the object of their worship, and now they are going to Dan or Bethel to one of the two golden calves, and they're worshiping a false god. Because someone swayed them to underestimate 
the value of their worship. See, now Judas, again, he wasn't, he wasn't motivated by care for the poor. The Bible plainly tells us this. He was a thief. Yeah, among the 12 disciples was a thief. Amen. And again, I'm not trying to reteach five weeks on Sunday mornings, but it just fit, okay? Considering the whole mere image thing that I've been in on Sunday mornings, in essence, Judas had become what he worshipped. He had tendencies of the devil. For that matter, he had the bag, the Bible tells us. He had the bag of the disciples, uh, and he bare what was put in there, which meant he had a tendency of embezzlement. And remember, if you'll remember John 13 and verse 2, remember that the devil, the Bible says, the devil put betrayal in the heart of Judas. The devil is a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Judas, we find out, is a thief. The Bible says in John 8, verses 42 through 44, Jesus said something very similar to the Jews. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my words. Again, this is Sunday morning stuff. If they can't hear their words, they have ears, but they can't hear. They've become like their gods. He says, Ye are of your father. Look, the devil and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. He speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. That is what Judas has become. He's become a thief, he's become a liar and ultimately he will become a murderer. Judas, now when you think of Judas and his, his posture, his observation, his concept in this story, Judas was in the business of getting what he could out of things. He held the bag. He bore what was put in it. The ointment we could have sold and got for so much money. He's into getting what he can get out of things. Bezzled a little money here and there on the side, you know. He was interested in what he could get out of the ointment. For that matter, later we will see he was interested in just getting 30 pieces of silver out of. His betrayal of the Lord. Let me make this statement. If we live our lives only interested in what we can get out of things, we're living on the bottom rung of the ladder. It's a shallow experience to be consumer only. Because you have two contrasts here. You have Judas who wants to see what he can get out of everything. And then you have Mary that has a year's worth of wages in the bottle willing to dispense it. And in one of the other harmonies of the Gospels, the Bible says Mary is going to be remembered for generations for what she has done. But Judas, he's just hanging from the gallows somewhere. And as it's described, then his, his bowels are burst open on a rock. And so just putting things together, it's almost as though he hung and then evidently the rope snapped and then he fell and he busted his guts out on a rock. That's the, the footnote upon Judas's wife. Now, several years ago, I preached a sermon from verse number nine. I am not attempting to re-preach it. But I preached a sermon from verse number nine that came from the phrase, they came not for Jesus' sake only. 
meaning that there were several people that gathered at Bethany and at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They gathered there because they learned of Jesus being there, but that wasn't the only reason, Sister Grace, according to the Scripture, why they were there. They weren't there for Jesus' sake only, but they were also there because they learned Lazarus, who had been dead but now alive, was there also. So there, were, there are two reasons... And let's bring this to, to the church. Let's bring it to this house. There are two reasons why people show up here. Number one, Jesus is here. But number two, those of you that have had a resurrection in your spirit, those of you that were dead in your sins and your trespasses and your transgressions are here and you are alive. Folks, I don't know of anything that can that can place any more significance, amen, on our participation around here than the fact that some people come to see you. I know that might be hard to digest, but there's some people that just come here because they know you are here and they knew who you once was. Amen. They come, amen, to see you. Amen. So we got to remember that, amen, even the very next service, that people don't just show up for Jesus' sake only. But some of them are for the Lazaruses that have been resurrected. They're spying out the lives of those that were deemed dead, that were deemed lost, that were deemed deteriorating, that were deemed sick. Yeah, they want to come and see the Margarets that that's, they said, hey, just a few hours and she'll pass. They're here for that. They're here for the Lazaruses among us. Amen. And with that being said, let me tell you, that's the reason why you personally are fought so hard sometimes. That is why sometimes the Christian journey can be a struggle at times. Because the Bible says in verse 11, because of the belief of many that was influenced by what happened in Lazarus' life, because what happened there, many believed upon the Lord because of what happened in Lazarus' life. The devil doesn't want your influence of what God has done in your life to permeate or saturate anybody else. He doesn't want them to believe because of what's happened to you. Because there's sometimes people have a hard time wrapping their minds around the Lord, but they can wrap their mind around your story and where you've been and what you've done and where you are now. And that will influence their belief in a higher power that if he did it for them, perhaps he can do it for me because their story is similar to mine. So it's not just for Jesus' sake only, but for the Lazaruses that were dead among us that have come back to life. And so with that being said, we are all targets of the enemy because our resurrections are testimonies to the power in the life of Jesus Christ. But take comfort tonight. The Bible tells us in the gospel that the disciple is not above his master. He told him, he says, if... If they hate you, remember they hated me before they hated you. Uh-huh. They, try, they tried to kill us. Look, this is what they desired to do with Lazarus. They wanted to kill him. He's been resurrected from the dead in the last chapter. Many are coming as a result of him. And some of those that have impure motives, they're wanting to kill Lazarus. He's already been dead once. But they want to kill him. They want to kill the resurrected. And listen, they want to kill him because they want to kill the resurrector. He says, if they hated you, understand they already hate me. However, Jesus said, this is important tonight. In John eleven twenty five, 25, and you're saying, Brother McGee, you're saying everything's important. Well, it is. 
Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection. What is that? That means Jesus is more than the resurrector. He's the one, he's more than just the one that does the resurrecting. He is also the resurrection. He is the very action or process itself. That changes matters. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if any man be, everybody say, in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When we, as members of the body of Christ, when we get in Christ, when we get in the resurrector, uh-huh, when we get in the resurrector, or when we get in the process of resurrection, when we get in the resurrection, old things are passed away, all things become new because he is more than just the resurrector. He is the resurrection. Let me state it like this. You cannot be in Christ without having a resurrection. Because that's what he is. He's the very process itself. He is the resurrection. Now, the Bible says, yes, in verse 10, the chief priests, they consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. So they're wanting to kill the Lord. Now they're thinking about, yeah, we'll kill Lazarus too. Why? Well, because he was dead and he's been resurrected. It says the chief priests desired to do this. Most of the chief priests, predominantly among the Sanhedrin, most of the chief priests were of that sect of people that were known as Sadducees. You know Sadducees, you know Pharisees, and you know the little phrase, they're sad you see because they don't believe in angels and they don't believe in a resurrection. The chief priests want to take Lazarus' life because they're of a sect that don't even believe in a resurrection. And everything that's surrounding Lazarus, everybody's saying he was resurrected. They want it. Listen to me very clearly. You know what they're wanting to do? They're wanting to somehow eliminate the evidence of the resurrected. Let me say this very clearly. That is what happens when people don't want to accept truth. People do not want to accept truth. They'll try to erase all traces of the truth. They want to destroy the evidence of the truth. Someone say amen. Later in scripture, and you understand with me, later in scripture, they'll try to kill the resurrector or the resurrection, if you will. But let's think about this for a moment. That's really going to be somewhat impossible, isn't it? To kill a resurrection. It's almost a, almost, almost a conflicting of terms. We're going to kill a resurrection. <laughs> you know, they, they have the old song that says, you can't keep a good man down. <laughs> Amen. They're going to try to kill the resurrection. Why are they doing all this? It's all because of everything that flows through John, speaking that I started that key verse with, because by believing, they might have life through his name. So we can't let anybody else believe because of the resurrection of Lazarus. We can't have anybody else jumping on board because of this. Because by believing, they might have life through his name. And so to sum up tonight, all that being said, what we really do when we come into the house of the Lord, and this is the reason why I just kind of put this label on this lesson tonight. We are sitting at the feet of the resurrection. We're sitting at the feet of the resurrection. When we pour those costly sacrifices of worship upon the Lord, we are placing that upon, if you will, the feet of the resurrection. Amen. 
Someone's life can be changed because of your life, ultimately by his life. But I don't want to, I don't want to uh, disregard my placement and my purpose, amen, in having a hand and being a part of what goes on in the house that I can carry it home with me. Let the fragrance, I pray, fill our houses, our homes, the places of concourse because it has went with us. Hallelujah. Can we bow our heads in this place tonight? Father, I come to you this evening. God, I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, for your spirit. I'm thankful, oh Lord Jesus, for your word. I'm thankful, oh Lord Jesus, tonight because you saw us, God, and you seen fit, Lord Jesus, God, to touch us anew and afresh. God, from the Old Testament going forward to the New Testament, men and women of old through time have brought things to you that have been very costly. Lord, others, God, have looked at it just, Lord, what can I get out of it? But there's others, Lord, of a different cut that says, what can I contribute? What can I put into it? I pray, oh, Lord, tonight, God, minister to each and every soul, each and every heart. God, each and every individual. Lord, help us, oh, God, tonight. God, just to be people that would, Lord, fit, Lord Jesus, sit at the feet, Lord, of the resurrection. God, we know, Lord, there is a day coming, Lord Jesus, that every man, woman, boy, and girl in the literal sense will be resurrected. But, God, we need resurrection of our spirits, Lord, to have resurrection of our bodies. Lord, in that day, Lord Jesus, not too far in the future. I pray, God, be with your people this week Lord comfort them strengthen them I pray oh God inspire them Lord challenge them concerning the things of the Lord and we will not fail to thank you and praise you for these things in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray amen and amen and the church say amen amen hallelujah thank you for being here on Wednesday night Bible study amen please remember prayer tomorrow night from 730 to 830 amen thank you for listening If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.